Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. Julie Heck is a PhD student in animal behavior and comparative psychology who works with Dr. Diana Reese at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. The New York Times has observed that Julie, quote, finds her bliss in canine urine, unquote. She is also a science writer and author of the popular Dog Spies blog at Scientific American. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thanks for having me. So, in America today, it is estimated that nearly 90 million dogs live in households, a growth of nearly 20 million dogs since 2000. The most popular dog breeds in the United States include Labrador Retrievers, German Shepherd Dogs, and Golden Retrievers. All of them vary in shape, size, color, appearance, and typical behavior. But we can authoritatively state that dogs in America have become an integral member of American families. How did you get interested in studying dog behavior, Julie? Oh, yes. Um, So like all of the households and the people in those households that you mentioned, I too have been a fan of dogs for quite some time. And I remember having uh, a childhood dog and I loved her and we had a great relationship. But I can't really tell you much about her mind or her behavior, why she did what she did. She was just a member of our family who I loved, which is a wonderful thing, you know, relationship to have. But when I was in college, I learned about this field called applied ethology, essentially the study of animal behavior, but specific to animals that we care for and manage. So whether it's in um, conservation settings or farm settings or zoo or aquarium settings or even the pets living in our household. So I learned that there was this field of inquiry, not only about how they came to live so intimately with us, but also how can we best care for and manage them with their own species-specific qualities in mind. So not necessarily treating them as little humans, but thinking of them and interacting with them in their own right. And so... When I learned that this this field exists, I kind of lost it and just started stalking everybody I could, you know, in a professionally appropriate way. My first um, target was my professor, Patricia McConnell, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is a huge name in the field um, in terms of books and outreach and connecting with the public to have them think about the dog's mind. Um, And I then had the opportunity to work with the Family Dog Project in Hungary that's explicitly studying the evolutionary underpinnings of this relationship. And then here in New York City, the opportunity to work with uh, Alexandra Horowitz, who's up at Barnard College, and more thinking about their umwelt, their their, um, sense of the world, how they see and take in the world. So I guess it just, I was, a dog lover. And then I just realized there was so much I didn't know. And then I just needed to keep digging and unpacking and, and picking into that area. 
And um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like dogs. <laughs> well, it's more than a parent. I mean, you have a really popular blog, Dog Spies, and you're quoted endlessly, which to my great pleasure. Um, so it's very obvious that you do like dogs. Yes. So, you know, in the intro, I said that the New York Times has declared you an expert on canine urine. Can you tell us what you've learned about dogs through studying canine urine? This is really utterly fascinating, especially as a New Yorker who owns a dog who takes her out and walks her. And of course, she has to smell other dogs' urine. Correct. And she does that every morning, every time I take her out. So I want to hear about this. Yes, I agree. I think it's kind of like... The reason I'm interested in urine is because they are interested in urine, and I am interested in what they are interested in. Um, So I had the opportunity to work with Alexandra Horowitz on one of her studies, looking at how dogs, for example, perceive their own urine um, versus the urine of another dog, let's say, or their urine that has been changed in some way. So there was a question of how dogs interact with smells that are similar to themselves or different from themselves. Um, So those are sort of questions we can ask to try and get at the mind of the dog. But what your dog is is doing on a daily walk is checking out the individuals in the neighborhood. Exactly what they are picking up on is really quite unclear to us. There's a lot of information that is, you know, contained in urine from from um, health status, from whether or not they're sexually receptive. All of those um, sixth sense pheromone uh, chemical communications are part of their social world. So it's almost like if we... I I can't think of an example, but if we closed off one of our senses that was really instrumental to how we communicated with each other, we'd have to, you know, we'd we'd be in a a new position. So this is just their way of interacting with each other when the other being is not there. So it's it's really a cool ability that they have. Yeah, and they also have a very keen sense of smell, especially a golden retriever, which is what I have. Like there it's like sixty nerves in their nose or olfactory nerves. And so they're keyed they're tuned up to smell everything. Yes. They're and they're interested. If you if you watch even how cats interact with the world, if I put something out, my cat will smell it. Like smell is how they learn about things. So um, whether it's some an object or another individual, whether it's a human or another dog or another species, but it's just there's so much embedded within it. So we really could pick apart all the things they might be smelling and study them explicitly. I think dog urine, you know, I, I have lots of different questions about it in terms of how long they smell, they spend sniffing, um, if they've just sniffed something and it's, and it's, you know, how long does it take to become new again? I'm interested in which leg they lift when <laughs> urinating. Um, is there like a side uh, ba- issue or not issue, but side co- um, component to urination with the, the, the raised leg urination? So there's, there's Which is lot- boy dogs. A, a lot of do- a lot of boys, but a lot of them also do a squat raise. Uh-huh. You know, so they're very advanced in their their urination, <laughs> or a, a full headstand. You know what's going on there. So, so they're they're not only as as what they're getting from it, but also how they seem to be using it to interact with other dogs is really just 
It can be quite territorial, correct? I mean, there's some, they're they're basically taking over their territory, aren't they? We're not entirely sure about that. I see. Okay. So we we have these concepts of what might be the um, applications, but to be honest, we need to test them in a lot of different settings. So looking at feral dogs is a new population that we're really interested in, um, a growing population, I'd say, that in Italy they are studying, like their urine marking behavior. Um, is there a difference between overmarking and adjacent marking? You know, where I guess what I hope when people see that I'm interested in canine urine, they say, wow, there's something actually in canine urine. Maybe I'll think about it, um, as opposed to necessarily have preconceived ideas about it. Thinking about urine is where I'd, I'd like to direct people. I see. Yeah, and I'm familiar with feral dogs, and especially in oh, right. southern Europe, yep. um, in the Balkans, mm-hmm. um, because the the idea of having a dog live in your house is not, it's not really uh, customary. Right. And so you'll see people, like I remember a moment when I was in Montenegro, in, in the capital, Podgorica, and this guy came out of his meat shop, the owner, and he just threw a slab of meat into yep. the street, you know? And I felt sorry for the dogs. And uh, it's an issue. And now stray dogs are becoming like a public health problem in Bosnia, for example. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. anyway, um, so that's interesting. I didn't know about your study of canine urine, but. But I am aware, most recently, in recent months, for example, you have garnered considerable media attention about the myth of canine guilt. And indeed, you were quoted in the March issue of Atlantic that many owners or masters of dogs make the wrong assumption that dogs do feel guilty, that that guilt look that we talk about uh, just might be a human projection. And you express concern about humans scolding their dogs, which could ultimately harm the dog-human bond. Can you explain that to our listeners? So, you know, we come home and the dog has gotten into something and we have this exchange with them, kind of similarly, the similar exchange we might have with a human, where we say, you know, you shouldn't have bad dog. And the dog seems to do something with their behavior that we say, yep, you know you've done something wrong. We're communicating here. And possibly even because I've told you bad dog, bad, you now won't do it in the future. So we think that there's this communication, this understanding, but research seems to show that the dog's quote unquote behavior, guilty look, is not so much associated with what the dog did, but with how you're responding. So they're not saying, yes, I know I did that thing wrong. They're just responding to your behavior. And so for some dogs, you can have a very mild um, dissatisfaction, let's say. Some some dogs might be receptive to a very major scolding, if you know what I mean. They're very perceptive to our emotional states. But this idea that a dog has a knowledge of a misdeed because he peed on the floor two hours later and you're two hours before you're coming home and scolding him is incorrect. Um, that's not that's not what's on the table. Um, you know, in terms of pr- the the experience of primary emotions, 
we dogs are mammals. They have a limbic system. We're on the same page. Secondary emotions we're a little bit more confused about um, in terms of how they might be experienced by a non-human animal. Um, so it's so our research would not suggest that dogs can't or don't feel guilt. Um, we really haven't investigated that. Instead, we're looking at this behavior that you see. What what is actually going on? Is the guilty look a knowledge of a misdeed? I'm sorry, it doesn't appear that way. But with that information in mind, you could say, wow, maybe I should pick up my underwear so he doesn't chew on it. Or maybe if he gets into the trash all the time, I'm going to figure out a different solution so that it's not available to him. So it's essentially setting up the environment for dogs to succeed, to do what you do want and not for them to do what you don't want. Um, when I joke with the, the animal, the, the being in my house, when he does something quote unquote wrong, 99.9% of the time, it's my fault. So I just think about it that way. How can we help them in our environment as opposed to not? Of course. Yes. Um, so that I, I loved all the articles that came out about the dog guilt look, and there was pictures, and there was a lot of media coverage of it. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and that like just it. really reflects just how central dogs are to our daily lives, yes. I think. Um, and in the media world, when you cross over from a video on Facebook to Atlantic Magazine, that yeah. shows you just how how important and in, in, of interest it is to readers. Yes, very true. Okay, so I have to get myself into Please. this. As a dog owner of a very happy, gregarious golden retriever, I have noticed that when we are in our building's elevator or outside talking with others, she makes a beeline for other people. I'm chopped liver. Uh, I am the furthest thing of interest to her, apparently. And you have written about this phenomenon, and the takeaway is context of a dog's encounter is everything right. with regard to this behavior. Yeah. Like, why doesn't she pay attention to me? She's yeah. talking to Phil the dog <laughs> and his mother. Correct. Well, it's... It's, this is where the, the field of psychology has really helped us dive into the dog's mind as well as the dog-human relationship. So obviously you are the primary figure in your dog's life, but when you're outside, your dog is a social being um, and you're clearly not a very fearful being, right? Um, right, right. So in different contexts, you essentially can provide your presence, can provide the comfort for them to explore the rest of the world. And actually, it's a very similar phenomenon that plays out with human infants and their mothers, where the presence of an owner can make an individual feel, or, or parent, can make an individual feel more comfortable so they can go out and explore the environment. Maybe it has toys or people, but, you know, I joke that if there's a dog who's waiting outside of a, a supermarket with somebody else, I'll very often, if I want to say hi to that dog, I will wait until that person returns. That dog has had a very brief reunion, and then it's my turn to get some time with the dog. Because these dogs, you know, they're, they're friendly, they're interested in people, but they do have a special relationship with you. So it's, it's seeing how context and location can change a dog's behavior. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, when I take her to the vet, 
this, of course, escalates anxiety, mm-hmm. and she'll almost crawl, try to crawl into my lap mm-hmm. in the waiting room, mm-hmm. you know, like she's freaked out about it. So, yeah. So, yeah. so there she doesn't really want to talk to anybody else except the people at the <laughs> counter that have dog treats, and Excellent. then she will, yeah, she'll almost climb onto the counter. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, it's... um. It's a. It's also a growing field, and I'm glad you brought up the vet. There's a whole movement called Fear Free that's being promoted by veterinarians, essentially saying we need to get dogs and cats and other pets in here with their owners. How can we make this place less fearful um, or fear-provoking? And so they're doing an awesome job of really thinking about the vet should not be a scary place. So I'm interested to see how that transformation takes over. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> My dog, you know, did have a serious uh, event Mm -hmm. in her early life, Mm -hmm. and she almost died. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you overcome that. That's pretty hard. They're they're there to help. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, yeah, so she gets lots of treats when she's at the vet. (laughs) So I I just want to take a moment for us to talk about interspecies relationships. For example... You see lots of videos, animal videos on Facebook and in the internet, you know, cats and dogs and dogs in a relationship with a raccoon and oh my God moment when the raccoon is on your back porch (laughs) with the dog or lions with dogs. Uh, There's a lot of fascination with this. And of course, this is a reality in my own home Mm -hmm. where my dog and newly acquired kitten Mm -hmm. are like the best of buddies. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I walk into the house, they're sleeping together. I mean, these guys hang together. Yeah, I'm like, I'm just sort of there. They're just completely (laughs) fascinated with one another. They chase each other around. I actually probably should get a webcam because I think they're doing stuff in the bathtub. Probably. You know, they're jumping. She's jumping. She's trying to get into the bathtub with me. My my dog. So I think there's a lot going on there. So why don't you talk about that? And and what, what are we finding out in terms of scientific research? Yeah. I think for um, a lot of these relationships, obviously they are, you can't predict an individual relationship, but when they are very successful, a lot of them have started in that the individuals have been around each other or other species from an early age. So we know that early life socialization and learning what's normal, um, learning cat communication signals, which are different from dog communication signals, the more time you spend with one another, particularly early in life, essentially can set you up for a pretty good relationship. Um, So that's what one study in particular has found about dogs and cats living in the home. Um, But when you look at dogs in particular, they are quite flexible. Like all those examples that you gave um, in terms of who they might see as a social partner and who they might show affiliation towards. They're very flexible and we are part of their social world. So with cats and dogs and thinking about who you might want a dog to be comfortable with, you really want to expose them to those those individuals early in life. Yes, well, my golden retriever was raised by cats. See? Yeah. She was around them from the beginning. It's wonderful. Yeah. And then you set them up for really nice friendships. But this friendship is exceptional. I've never seen a friendship like this. Mm. I've never personally witnessed two more 
attuned to each other. It's incredible. I think it's time for an Instagram. Page. It is. It is. Yes. There is Instagram images, actually. I'll oh. share them. And we have to, you know, when it comes to dogs in America, one of the big uh, fascinations of the American public is always with the president and his family, the first family. Mm. And what dog did they did they pick? And of course, as a child, I was an advocate early in my life. And the first letter I wrote to a president was actually to Lyndon Baines Johnson about his mistreatment of her and him, his oh, his beagles. Yeah. I don't know if you read about that. And he would pick them up by their ears right. and make them yelp. Uh-huh. Very LBJ-like, but uh-huh. it incensed my you know, seven or eight year old self, right. and I wrote a letter. Mm-hmm. And they did respond, by oh, the wow. way. They referred me to the local <laughs> ASPCA. Oh, interesting. But, but this president and this first family is dogless. Right. And it's the first time since before FDR. Right. I mean, his dog, Fala, uh-huh. is enshrined in sculpture, yes. in bronze. Yes. You know, at the at the Eleanor Roosevelt exhibit yes. uh, in Washington, Fallows there sitting next to FDR in his wheelchair. Um, so it appears that our current president doesn't really like dogs. And in this case, maybe I would feel sorry for the dog if the president had a dog. But what do you think about this fact that mm-hmm. the president doesn't have a dog and it really is sort of counterintuitive to Americans because there's 89 million Americans with dogs. Mm. What does it say about him as a person or maybe just the situation sociologically? Right. So um, I I have a lot of compassion for people with and without dogs, meaning I want people to have a dog who want a dog and who are going to think about the dog as an individual and what goes into bringing that dog into their family. So if somebody does not want a dog, I do not want them to have a dog, meaning I know a lot of people that have had dogs and don't want them anymore, or people that didn't grow up with dogs and really don't understand them at such a fundamental level. And they're human beings too. So in a way, I really am very thoughtful of the, I I want people to have a dog if they want one, and please do not have a dog if you do not want to have a dog. Well, I'll just end this by saying Harry Truman once said that if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. (laughs) So I don't think this president really wants or even thinks he needs dogs. But Julie Hecht, I'm going to have you back to talk about your uh, dissertation research on cats in the future, because there's a lot of us that are cat lovers, too. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Julie Hecht. Thank you. The Thought Project was produced in partnership with CUNY TV, located at the Graduate Center in the heart of New York City, with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman and Jack Horowitz. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.